Welcome to Walla Moms, where we talk about everything that you're not supposed to. I'm your host, Karen. People are asking about how they can best support us. Give us a good rating on your podcasting platform or on iTunes. Tell a friend. Be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much to Centrist in Portland on Twitter. Their handle is Centrist in Port 2. And I really appreciate all the publicity from Centrist in Portland and the love coming our way from there and from our other listeners and our followers. Thanks so much for connecting with us. One new announcement about the show. I have some really great news for all you data geeks out there who are like me. In the show notes, which are included on any podcasting platform you're listening to, I'm going to start linking to the articles that I discuss. That way you can fact check me, you can read them for yourselves, and they might lead you to dig around and do some of your own research. I'm also hopeful that they will continue some of these conversations with the friends and family who are curious people and open-minded people as all of you are, and other smart people that you want to engage in dialogue with. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I use the word show notes, they're a basic description about the episode that, for instance, on iTunes are found if you just scroll up on the podcast episode. If you're not sure where to find your show notes, just Google show notes for your podcast provider. So far, I've been able to add links for the first show, the flagship episode. I'm slowly assembling a mini team to help me with the podcast and will continue working on the rest of the episodes so that you have those resources and so that you will have the links to the articles cited and mentioned and all of the links to the data that we discuss here at Wall of Moms. And of course, we are always open to contrary data and happy to read um, whatever articles or data that you happen to have um, that's reliable and that discredits anything that we talk about. Because again, this is a conversation and I'm a curious person and I always want to know more and have my beliefs challenged. So I appreciate all of you who are helping me do that. Going forward, we will have links to the articles referenced in our show notes. So this show will contain links for you in the show notes of the episode. I am so excited about this development, you guys. Next, listener feedback and questions. First question, are you going to register as a Republican? You are starting to sound like one. Answer to the first question, I'm not comfortable changing my voter registration Republican, especially after Governor Abbott's abortion law. Um... And you know, if you want to understand my feelings about abortion, Caitlin Flanagan is an absolutely fabulous author who did an article about abortion at the Atlantic and basically explains that the it's a difficult subject and the arguments for both sides are actually really pretty fucking good. And if you have trouble understanding what the arguments for against what whatever side you're on, in the abortion conflict, if you have trouble understanding the arguments against your side, her article is a great way to challenge yourself and to think about those subjects deeply. But regardless of, I'm, a, I'm pro-choice, but I certainly understand the best arguments for the pro-lifers. All of that said, I Abbott's Law is certainly not something that I would endorse. 
The GOP is not something I'm willing to sign on to at this point. I did hear Andrew Yang is starting his own party, and I think that's interesting. He seems like a bright guy. I'm not saying I'm signing up for his party, but I did love how he said that the city should do more to keep the mentally ill homeless off the streets. And this is from the Boston Herald 62121. This is Andrew Yang. Yes, mentally ill people have rights, but you know who else have rights? We do. The people and families of the city. We have the right to walk the street and not fear for our safety because a mentally ill person is going to lash out at us, Yang said. He advocated for forcing some mentally ill people off the streets and into treatment centers. Some liberal critics, mayoral opponents, and mental health advocates hit back at Yang, saying he was trying to criminalize mental health illness. All of us know someone that is dealing with a mental health issue and for him to demonize them and to feel as though they are going to further criminalize them. That is the wrong mindset. Mayoral frontrunner Eric Adams said another candidate, civil rights attorney, Maya Wiley called Yang's comments deeply disturbing, but Yang stood by his remarks saying he was simply trying to say that all residents should be protected from crime. End of article. You know, Yang is not for criminalizing the mentally ill, and neither am I. Conservatorships are a civil process. They're not a criminal process. It involves no criminal punishment whatsoever. That argument that it's criminalization is silly. That's like saying if you if you take power of attorney or get a judge to appoint you as conservator over a family members suffering from dementia or a similarly debilitating illness that you're you are engaged in in treating that family member as a criminal or you are criminalizing their illness that is a far left wing inaccurate talking point um conservatorships are not criminal processes those are civil processes decided by a judge. They are certainly appealable and those processes are rigorous. They involve mental health experts and those kind of rigorous processes, I would be in favor for the most rigorous process ever if one were to be implemented. I certainly think that the allegedly ill person, whether via mental illness or drug abuse, should have their own legal representative, their own lawyer, their own advocate present in court to argue against the conservatorship. I think that there should be a battle of mental health experts to the extent that there are people to testify to the fact that the mentally ill or the drug addicted person should not have a conservatorship. Those people should be called and should be heard from. I think there certainly should be due process involved, the most rigorous process, because it does involve infringing on somebody's liberty, the liberty to be mentally ill, the liberty to be homeless. But I agree with Andrew Yang, there is a conflict there. And just because you are mentally ill or homeless and you are unable to make the tiniest of decisions that involve you and your life, and because you're out there in your trauma decomposing for the world to see doesn't mean that we need to also witness your trauma and we and, and pay for you to be traumatized on, on a continual basis we are i think 
the city of Portland loves taxes, and I think that we would be happy, more than happy, to pay to help these people become functioning members of society. And I, for one, certainly would. I was happy to do that for my dad. I'm happy to do that for my sister. She knows that invitation has been extended to her at any time she would like inpatient treatment. I will pay for it as many times and as long as I need to. She has declined that so far, but as a family member who has people suffering, living on the streets, living in ways that no human being should ever live, um, I would like to see compelled help for them. And so to that extent, I think Yang is pretty interesting. And I think the idea that he's starting a new party is something that um, we should explore. I know he's in a universal basic income. That's not something that scares me. In fact, I think it might be necessary as a safety net to assist those who are mentally incapable, who have intellectually um, are intellectually disabled, incapable of holding a job. But that's a topic for another day. Answer to the second question um, that I'm sounding like a Republican. I have no doubt that I sound like a Republican here in Portland, but I can assure you that my rural friends in Oregon and my friends from red states like Alabama think that I sound like I am the kind of person who brings a reusable tote made out of recyclable material to the grocery store and nibbles on cacao. And I think if you spent some time in even a purple state like Nevada, Arizona, or Georgia, I wouldn't seem so right-wing to you. Let's go to listener comments. We've received a tip from a listener that the Lincoln High School teacher who was struck by a stray bullet in her bed actually ended up losing her eyeball. This is one of the sad casualties of the ever-increasing gun violence in Portland, Oregon. I don't have an article to confirm that. This is a tip from a listener who is connected to Lincoln High School. Thank you, listener. We have some good listener comments. One is... D.A. Schmidt is a major problem to law enforcement. I don't know how someone would reasonably argue that crime is not reduced by a police presence. It also really increases people's feelings of safety to have a visible police force, which brings out more lawful elements into society, which by itself, I believe, reduces crime simply by people policing others. I'm not going to let somebody break into a car right in front of me without filming it and calling the cops. Good comment. I agree with that comment. We've received a lot of comments that Portland got what it deserved when it elected DA Mike Schmidt because Schmidt's challenger was Ethan Knight from the U.S. Attorney's Office, who was perceived to be more serious about law enforcement here in Portland, Oregon. Now, I've heard from listeners who voted for Mike Schmidt that they perceived him as being focused on rehab and treatment for drug offenders, which I think a majority of people, including me, agree with. And I've had some interesting conversations with those listeners. Um, They are now extremely disappointed in Mike Schmidt, and they would not ever vote for him again, according to them. But they liked what he had to say, and they liked his focus on decriminalization of drugs and more of a focus on rehabilitation. The problem is the rehabilitation is not coming. And so that is a huge issue here in the city of Portland is where is, we understand that drugs are decriminalized and we understand that Schmidt is um, really decreasing the drug-related arrests. And I don't, I, and it sounds like these listeners, we don't have an issue with that in a vacuum. But I think the issue is where is the treatment piece And that is not something that Portland is providing us. 
For instance, if you go to the episode with a guest nurse bed user, nurse practitioner, she explained in depth how little resources there are for people who are addicted to drugs in Portland, Oregon, to the point that they literally can't function. And the resources there are just painfully, horrifically inadequate, probably hence all of the, the tents. This is from Willamette Week. September 23rd, 2021, providers warn substance abuse treatment is vanishing in Oregon. In a letter earlier this month to Governor Kate Brown, 22 Oregon leaders in substance abuse treatment warned that at least 12 treatment providers are closing. The September 2nd letter from the advocacy group Oregon Recovers and Others blames the exodus on the slow distribution of funds. The crisis comes while Oregon is implementing Measure 110, which decriminalized many hard drugs and provided a funding source for treatment. Decriminalization went into effect February 1. The measure also will divert state cannabis revenues from existing uses, K-12 education and county services, to new access to treatment. But there was a built-in time lag. The deadline for the new services to come online was October 1, eight months after decriminalization. The legislature provided $33 million in early bridge funding to narrow that gap. But the pandemic has caused havoc for treatment providers. Overdoses have skyrocketed nationally and in Oregon during the pandemic. It is unclear yet what role decriminalization of hard drugs has played in Oregon's numbers, but advocates say that because of payment issues and workforce shortages, the treatment field exacerbated by COVID, the safety net is gone. Social distancing has meant spacing treatment beds further apart, and since reimbursement is done on a per capita basis at what advocates say are very low rates, COVID has hammered revenues. The slow implementation of resources is causing system failure, the letter to the governor says. There is a clear and present danger to the system that demands your immediate action. There are at least a dozen substance abuse disorder programs shutting down. The letter asks Brown to take action to direct resources to this rapidly exploding behavioral health emergency. More Oregonians have died from drug overdoses during the pandemic than have died from COVID-19, the letter says. Just sit with that for a minute. More Oregonians have died from drug overdoses during the pandemic than have died from COVID-19. Back to the article, Brown spokesperson Charles Boyle says the governor is taking action. Our office has met with Oregon Recovers to discuss their requests and concerns, Boyle says. My understanding is that the Oregon Health Authority has been working with behavioral health stakeholders to address workforce concerns. At Brown's request, Steve Allen, the director of behavioral health for OHA, wrote to all providers September 15th, acknowledging the problem. The current staffing shortage within residential facilities has placed additional strain on workers dedicated to serving our communities, Allen wrote. This situation has also reduced access to this level of care, contributing to financial stresses on providers, which could lead program reductions and closures at a time when these services are more critical than ever. Allen told providers the agency will provide immediate support for child care costs for providers, is seeking funding for financial incentives for workers, and has temporarily reduced reporting and other administrative requirements. Mark Marshall, the executive director of Oregon Recovers, says he appreciates the response, but he and his allies would like to see more. We are grateful to the OHA staff who are working directly with the providers to implement some key changes, Marshall says, but we remain perplexed that the governor has yet to publicly acknowledge the addiction crisis gripping the state and the hemorrhaging of addiction recovery staff. Without her personal leadership and prioritization, OHA staff will continue to prioritize it alongside the many 
other challenges the state faces. This is a real crisis. I want to read this part again. More Oregonians have died from drug overdoses during the pandemic than have died from COVID-19. Boy, that is not front and center, is it? There's no mandates around that, are there? So that is a bigger drug overdoses. Those are a bigger crisis in Oregon than COVID, but you would never know it based on news coverage and based on all of the hand-wringing being done by citizens of Oregon. When really our focus should be on drug prevention, drug treatment, money and calories and time and effort being diverted to drug treatment centers, rehabilitation centers, which are apparently in great crisis. And this focus on things like outdoor masking and spraying everything down and plexiglass is really distracting. And it seems that what really needs focus and what the data is telling us is should demand our focus is really getting lost. Now, the listeners who've told me that they voted for Schmidt and now regret it, they were very hopeful that Schmidt was going to create a system where instead of incarcerating addicts, he was demanding that they receive treatment and going through a drug court style process where treatment was being emphasized rather than what they now see happening, which is Schmidt just like sort of allowing lawlessness to occur and being pretty disengaged from the overall state of lawlessness in the city of Portland. I do think Ethan could have mentioned, Ethan Knight, Mike Schmidt's challenger, could and should have mentioned how rehab and treatment would fit into his overall plan in order to better clash with Mike. Had he done so, it's possible that Ethan would have had a chance. I certainly think in today's climate with crime skyrocketing, Ethan would have a better chance. We've seen Mike Schmidt's performance in that job, and I would hope that most reasonable people are wide-eyed enough to see that that's not working. Remember, Mike Schmidt is the guy, our current DA, he's the guy who told Willamette Week on uh, 7-15-2020, I think that when you look historically at this nation, it's during these protests when we've gotten some of the changes we are proudest of in our nation's history, and sometimes it took some property damage. It took more than just peaceful protests to get the government's attention. I'm very mindful of that. So that is the guy that we elected, unfortunately. And one would hope that someday we could cough up a reasonable candidate who is not only law and order minded and would like to change the overall lawless nature of the city of Portland while focusing on rehab and drug treatment for those in such absolute and dire need in a crisis that apparently dwarfs the COVID crisis in the state of Oregon. And that's, if you turn on the news, if you look at a newspaper, if you talk to a colleague, that's one hell of a crisis, dwarfing something that dwarfs COVID. Another listener comment. Mike Schmidt's unwillingness to prosecute has got to 
be really undermining police enthusiasm for law enforcement. If you felt like you did the work and it went nowhere, your motivation to get out of your car and do any work really goes to hell. Because beyond the low numbers of police, we also have a serious problem with a soft strike mentality amongst really disgruntled officers. A case in point to that listener comment is a recent Portland Police Bureau blotter that was brought to my attention about how crazy things have become here in the city of Portland post-2020. This is from the Portland Police Bureau. It's one of their media relations posts. And this is from September 30th, 2021. The headline is, Man Burglarizes an Occupied Restaurant Officer Suffers Minor Injury. Officers responded to a report of somebody pounding on the doors of a restaurant in the 1500 block of Northeast 103rd Avenue. The restaurant dining room was closed, but employees were working the drive-thru at the time. Officers attempted to talk to the man, including an enhanced crisis intervention team officer that specializes in crisis communication. And the abbreviation for that enhanced crisis intervention team is ECIT. The ECIT officer used de-escalation techniques, including giving the man time and space. He remained uncooperative, so officers backed out and monitored from a distance. A short time later, the man used a rock roughly the size of a grapefruit to break the glass door and access the inside. Employees hid in a freezer room to get away from him. Officers chased the suspect inside, but he barricaded himself in a break room. The officers evacuated the employees while they negotiated with the man. After a lengthy communication period, an officer used a sledgehammer to break down a window to allow another officer to deploy pepper spray. After the use of pepper spray, the suspect was convinced to come out and surrender. During the incident, an officer was cut with broken glass. He was treated and released from the hospital. This kind of rigmarole and these, in this case, I would say silly tactics that... I mean, I don't, it doesn't say how long this took, but it, it must have taken hours to deal with somebody who was clearly either having a drug episode, a mental event, or both is bizarre and seems like a waste of time, effort, and money, particularly when this city's on track to outdo its record of all-time homicides. These officers could be used in any myriad ways instead of these ridiculous de-escalation techniques. The whole thing could have been avoided with an arrest, period. Show up, the guy's uncooperative, he's threatening employees. Uh, go ahead, bring in the ECIT officer, use the de-escalation techniques. But at the point that you're continuing to be uncooperative, arrest the guy and move on to your homicides move on to your burglaries and things like that. Then we don't even get to the point where you're, I mean, they're negotiating with this guy like it's a it's a hostage episode or something. Like, like they're using hostage negotiating CIA-based Quantico tactics. This is silly. This is somebody who should just be arrested and processed. He's clearly being uncooperative. He's resisting arrest. He's not allowing you to speak to him about the situation or get him calmed down to the point where you can get him connected with somebody who can give him some medication or something. 
And in the meantime, while you're screwing around with all these de-escalation techniques, employees are hiding in a freezer room because he's using a grapefruit-sized rock to break the door. I mean, can, if that hits somebody in the head, that could kill somebody. And they're just stand, the officers are standing back, allowing him to do this because, like the listener said, this is they they have no motivation to arrest anybody. And in fact, if you do put cuffs on somebody, you're going to be scrutinized like crazy. And, and you know, you're going to be the next devil. Uh, so there's really no motivation to keep people safe from dangerous criminals and people who are dangerous generally. I don't care if they're having a mental event. If they're making people unsafe, they need to be dealt with. Now, as you guys know, I have many ideas for dealing with people having mental events. But in the moment, those people need to be contained, whether it be arrest or what have you, they need to be contained so they're not throwing grapefruit-sized rocks at employees and getting officers injured. Next question, next listener question. Why aren't more people getting vaccinated? My 80-year-old mother was able to get vaccinated and she seemed to have no problems. So in terms of the people who are not vax-opposed or opposed to getting a vaccine, why are they not vaccinated? That's an interesting question. I have heard from people like Nurse Betty and Mitch McConnell, who, as you know, is a frequent guest and is also a nurse. Um and from family members who are physicians, that there are people in the hospitals who are not opposed to the vaccine, but who are reporting that they just didn't get around to getting it. Um, I think we are underestimating Americans' ability to be lazy. I really do. Also, remember the podcast where we talked about how, based on the Brookings Institute research, Americans' responses to COVID are purely political and they're news-driven depending on the kind of news articles you're consuming at the time. And that's not something that does not... Don't think it, politicians aren't impervious to this. Politicians are doing the same thing. They're either listening to Fox News or they're scrolling through the New York Times database about the handful of kids who died from COVID, and then they're making decisions based on that. There's, many of these decisions are not data-driven, and that sows mistrust. We are not following the science in this country. We are following politics, and we are following emotionally-driven responses to news coverage. That's according to the Brookings Institute, what we talked about on the earlier podcast. So maybe people are not getting vaccinated because they can't trust what they're hearing and they can't trust the guidance that they're getting in this country. Fauci, our COVID guru, the one person we were supposed to trust to keep us safe that I for one did trust to keep me safe, especially when Trump was in office, is saying, you know, he's now admitting that his admonishment to us to not wear masks was a blatant self-acknowledged lie to keep masks for frontline workers. Fauci lies to Congress, saying that the National Institutes of Health, the NIH, has never funded gain-of-function gain of research in Wuhan. Gain-of-function research 
for those of you who aren't nerds like me, is where you modify a biological agent like a virus so that it becomes more active. That kind of research really has the potential to make the virus more dangerous in humans. So Fauci had said previously to Congress that the NIH did not support gain, and it's G-A-I-N, gain of function, gain of function research. Now, according to Newsweek, September 9th, 2021, we know this was a lie. Based on documents that were released by The Intercept and reviewed by Richard Ebright, who's on the board of governors and professor of chemistry and chemical biology at Rutgers, those documents showed unequivocally that NIH grants were used to fund gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute. If that doesn't sow mistrust, I don't know what does. We have discussed also on this podcast all of the studies showing cloth masks don't work longer than an average of about five minutes or so, yet Oregon still has an indoor mask mandate with absolutely no guidance on what kind of masks to use. For one of the best pieces on this, take a look at the interview of Dr. Michael Osterholm, an epidemiologist on Biden's transition team at the University of Minnesota on CNN on August 3rd, 2021, in a segment called, Do Masks Provide as Much Protection as We Think? We're also masked outside here in Oregon. No data to support this. No studies to support this. Here in Oregon, kids are masked inside and outside at school. Meanwhile, we can go to indoor bars and restaurants. So these kind of unscientific policies, inconsistencies, lack of data-based policy making is what is sowing distrust and mistrust. And when you're using those same microphones... From, from these same people who are not following science and you're telling people to get vaccinated, it's hard for them to believe you. We have failed utterly to communicate scientific facts in this country because our communication of those facts is politically driven. If you are like most people in Portland and you've been vaccinated and you're standing outside and you're reluctant to take your mask off, you are either unaware of current scientific understanding of COVID or you willfully choose to ignore it because you don't want your lack of a mask outside to be seen as a mega hat. The mask is a political signal. And when you can't talk about vaccine hesitancy and legitimately smart Democrats like Brett Weinstein, his wife, Heather Hying, Brett Weinstein, excuse me, his wife, Heather Hying. And when you can't talk about progressives who voted for Bernie Sanders like Joe Rogan, and all of them are being shut down for even questioning this vaccine, that also sows mistrust and distrust. So it's not a surprise that everything in this country having to do with COVID is political. I'm vaccinated, but I only got vaccinated after doing, I mean, you, we, we've got a whole country of unscientific people doing their own scientific research because they can't trust what's coming out of the mouths of the people who are supposed to be protecting us. So, I, I mean, I only got vaccinated after I read all the research and talked to different doctors. I talked to my physicians. I talked to my primary care doc. I talked to my kids, peed. I talked to my family members who are doctors. I looked at the data for myself and thought it was a no-brainer to get vaccinated. But when you're, you've got a country of people who are not trained in science 
forced to do their own research because they can't trust what their leaders are telling them and you're in the middle of a pandemic, this is going to be the result. The result is going to be that when things like vaccines work, a lot of people aren't going to get them because they're being told to get them by people they do not trust. The CDC has failed us. So many people want definitive scientific answers. The truth is there is no data that mass mandates in schools are beneficial at all. London is a much bigger city than Portland, Oregon, and in London, they don't mask kids. The masking of kids is not recommended under six and between six to 11 year olds, it is only advised in some circumstances by the World Health Organization. The CDC contradicts this. It is no wonder that we have so much confusion. So for those of you who are creating memes about the idiots who aren't getting vaccinated and talking about the yokels and the yahoos and the dumbasses who need to get their vaccinations so that we can take our masks off and enjoy our concerts again, I want you to really step back and think about reasons why a reasonable person might not get vaccinated because they're out there. There are reasonable people millions of you I know listen to Joe Rogan and think that he's a reasonable person. He didn't get vaccinated. The problem is in this world, particularly in Portland, people become extreme and they become true believers and they make these issues their religion. And no amount of evidence will change their mind. For instance, no amount of evidence will, will change Portlanders' mind on whether we need to wear masks outside or masks inside or whether kids should be masked or on whether 50% of COVID, people who get COVID are gonna end up in the hospital. That's incorrect, by the way, but that's what, basically that's what Democrats believe. We talked about that in the Brookings Institute podcast. And that's really hard. For instance, why aren't we investing time and money on weight loss? I think it's common knowledge by now that that's the second biggest risk factor for COVID after age, but you can't talk about that. We want to talk about frontline workers and masks, but those aren't real issues. The real issues and the risk factors are weight and age, not whether you were wearing a mask or what your job was. Group think, you guys, is the enemy of rigor. And the problem is in this country, in regard to COVID, we have abandoned rigor. And certainly in Portland, we have abandoned rigorous thought to the altar of extremism. Extremism is bad in any form, and Portland's a great example of that. If you keep taking away challenges to orthodoxy, people become fanatics. Let's institute an outdoor mask mandate. Let's pull Brett Weinstein off of YouTube. Let's wear a mask alone outside so people don't think I voted for Donald Trump. Guess what? It's good to challenge yourself. Portlanders are so afraid of anybody who thinks differently from them. And they will physically, if you tell somebody in Portland that you voted for Donald Trump, which you guys know I didn't, but let's say hypothetically I told somebody that, they would physically step away from me. So people in Portland don't generally enjoy challenging themselves or having disagreements with people, even smart other smart people. It's good to challenge yourself. To disagree now, though, is offensive and it makes you offensive, particularly in Portland. It makes people feel unsafe. But thinking and philosophizing should be like, I think it should be like lawyering and stand-up comedy. I never give an opening statement 
or a closing statement without practicing it in front of lots and lots and lots of people. And I include non-lawyers in those practice sessions because those are my jurors. I mean, sometimes I get lawyers on my jury, but usually I don't. And if I do, somebody wants to kick some of the one other lawyer, be it me or the other side, wants to kick them off. So generally they don't survive. So I like to include people from all walks of life on my fake jury, and I will give an opening and a closing statement over and over and over and over and over again to them. Or stand-up comedy, stand-up comedy. Comedians will work their act. 50 different times before they go on tour with it because they want to know what works and what doesn't. And when, if we want to think deeply about things and if we want to engage in philosophy, we should be able to refine our ideas and change our minds based on data. And if your ideas are so great, if you think your ideas are so wonderful, they should be able to stand up to the ideas of others. And now we're done with listener questions and comments. Please keep those coming. Today we're going to talk about a hot button issue recycling here in Portland. You are aggressively encouraged to compost and to recycle. The city of Portland only comes to pick up trash twice a month. Instead of putting all of our excess trash in our garage and recreating a bit of downtown Portland with a heaping pile of trash in our garage, albeit encased in bags, we just decided to pay for as many bins as we need. We pay about, I don't know, $250 a month for garbage for our family. We have four enormous regular trash cans and two recycling trash cans for Amazon boxes and other cardboard items. Just a bit of context about where I'm coming from personally on this. In college, I worked for a professor who was a biologist and his primary focus was studying composting. I spent a year studying composting with him and I concluded that it probably would never be something for me. It seemed expensive and frankly like a waste of time. And the amount of vermin, maggots, raccoons, and other unseemly creatures it attracted were legion. It turns out that my conclusions in college about composting are actually shared by a journalist named John Tierney, who has a degree from Yale. He's written for the Atlantic, National Geographic, Newsweek, Rolling Stone, and the New York Times. I accidentally found out about him because I am a Gary Tobbs fan. Gary is a science journalist who is very controversial. Gary wrote one of the most controversial articles ever published in the New York Times Magazine called What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie? about how a ketogenic diet is good for you and the low-fat diet garbage we Americans have been consuming for decades was just making us fatter. In a podcast Gary was on, he mentioned that the other most controversial article in the New York Times Magazine ever ran was about how recycling is actually just a huge waste of time with no real benefit. I found this fascinating, especially living in Portland, which is obsessed with recycling and composting. My only time away from Portland was a brief stint in Seattle, which is basically Portland's twin in almost every way, except that it's richer and has more fun things like the baseball stadium and NFL team, etc. But I think you'll find the information in John Tierney's articles as fascinating and as mind-blowing as I did. One of the most interesting points is that John Tierney's groundbreaking article from the New York Times Magazine, Recycling is Garbage, was from 1996. So this is information we've been had, had circulating around since 1996, and it has certainly not sunk in generally, certainly not in the city of Portland at all. And he goes through the history of recycling even. So John Tierney, Recycling is Garbage, New York Times Magazine, June 30th, 1996. 
Tierney begins by talking about the history of recycling. He says it was a grand national experiment began in 1987, back when the three R's had nothing to do with garbage. That year, a barge named Mobro 4000 wandered thousands of miles trying to unload its cargo of Long Islanders trash, and its journey had a strange effect on America. The citizens of the richest society in the history of the planet suddenly became obsessed with personally handling their own waste. Believing that there was no more room in landfills, Americans concluded that recycling was their only option. Their intentions were good, and their conclusions seemed plausible. Recycling does sometimes make sense for some materials in some places at some times. But the simplest and cheapest option is usually to bury garbage in an environmentally safe landfill. And since there's no shortage of landfill space, the crisis of 1987 was a false alarm. There's no reason to make recycling a legal or moral imperative. Mandatory recycling programs aren't good for posterity. They offer mainly short-term benefits to few groups. Politicians, public relations consultants, environmental organizations, waste handling corporations, while diverting money from genuine social and environmental problems. Recycling may be the most wasteful activity in modern America, a waste of time and money, a waste of human and natural resources. The public's obsession wouldn't have lasted this long unless recycling met some emotional need. Americans have embraced recycling as a transcendental experience, an act of moral redemption. We're not just reusing our garbage, we're performing a rite of atonement for the sin of excess. As Newsweek noted in a magazine cover story titled Buried Alive, with rare exceptions during wartime, Americans have not been adept at making individual sacrifices for the common good. That mentality will have to change. Otherwise, the dumps will cover the country coast to coast and the trucks will stop in everybody's backyard. Suddenly, the EPA promulgated a waste hierarchy that ranked trash disposal options, recycling at the top, composting and waste to energy incinerators in the middle, and landfills at the bottom. Politicians across the country have bigger ideas. State and city officials enacted laws mandating recycling and setting arbitrary goals even higher than the EPA's. Most states set rigid quotas, typically requiring that at least 40% of trash be recycled, often even more, 50% in New York and California, 60% in New Jersey, 70% in Rhode Island. Municipalities followed the waste hierarchy by building waste-to-energy incinerators and starting thousands of curbside recycling programs, all in the belief that it would be cheaper than landfilling. But the incinerators turned out to be disastrously expensive, and the recycling programs produced a glut of paper, glass, and plastic that no one wanted to buy. So recycling devotees hit on a new solution. If people aren't willing to buy our precious garbage, we'll force them. The federal government and dozens of states passed laws that required public agencies, newspapers, and other companies to purchase recycled materials. These regulations, along with a wide variety of tax breaks and subsidies, have pushed the national rate of recycling up to Porter's goal of 25%, an expensive achievement, since the programs lose money. But that's still not enough. Environmental groups are pressuring local governments to expand their recycling programs to meet the goals set in law. Goals that, according to the officials who helped start the whole movement, are impossible to reach. Plastic packaging and food containers may seem wasteful, but they actually save resources and reduce trash. The typical household in Mexico City buys fewer packaged goods than an American household, but it produces one-third more garbage chiefly because Mexicans buy fresh food in bulk and throw away large portions that are unused, spoiled, or stale. 
Those apples that are protected by plastic wrap and foam are less likely to spoil. The lightweight plastic packaging requires much less energy to manufacture and transport than traditional alternatives like cardboard or paper. Food companies have switched to plastic packaging because they make more money by using resources efficiently. A typical McDonald's discards less than two ounces of garbage for each customer served, less than what's being generated by a typical meal at home. Plastic packaging is routinely criticized because it doesn't decay in landfills, but neither does most other packaging, as William Rathje, an archaeologist at the University of Arizona, has discovered from his excavations of landfills. Rathje found that paper, cardboard, and other organic materials, while technically biodegradable, tend to remain intact in the airless confines of a landfill. These mummified materials actually use much more landfill space than plastic packaging, which has steadily been getting smaller and smaller as manufacturers develop stronger, thinner materials. Juice cartons take up half the landfill space occupied by the glass bottles they replaced. 12 plastic grocery bags fit in the space occupied by one paper bag. America today has a good deal more landfill space available than it did 10 years ago. Landfills are scarce in just a few places, mainly because of local politics. Environmentalists have prevented new landfills from opening by propounding another myth, that our, gar our garbage will poison us. But it's not fair to compare modern municipal trash landfills with things like Love Canal, an old industrial dump filled with large concentrations of toxic chemicals that seeped into the ground when school was stupidly built on the site. Today's landfills for municipal trash are filled mostly with innocuous materials like paper, yard waste, and construction debris. They contain small amounts of hazardous waste like lead and mercury, but studies have found that these poisons stay trapped inside the massive garbage, even in the old, unlined dumps that were built before today's stringent regulations. So there's little reason to worry about modern landfills, which by federal law must be lined with clay and plastic, equipped with drainage and gas collection systems, covered daily with soil, and monitored regularly for underground leaks. It is better to recycle than to throw away. This is the most enduring myth, the one that remains popular even among those who don't believe in the garbage crisis anymore. By now, many experts and public officials acknowledge that America could simply bury its garbage, but they object to this option because it diverts trash from recycling programs. Recycling, which was originally justified as the only solution to a desperate national problem, has become a goal in itself, a goal so important that we must preserve the original problem. Why is it better to recycle? The usual justifications are that it saves money and protects the environment. These sound reasonable until you start handling garbage. Every time a sanitation department crew picks up a load of bottles and cans from the curb, New York City loses money. The recycling program consumes resources. It requires extra administrators and continual public relations campaign explaining what to do with dozens of different products. Recycle milk jugs, but not milk cartons. Index cards, but not construction paper. Most New Yorkers still don't know all the rules. And stepping away from the article for a minute, Portlanders certainly don't know all the rules. We are continually being educated about what we can recycle and what we can't. Back to the New York Times article. It requires enforcement agents to inspect garbage and issue tickets. Most of all, it requires extra collection crews and trucks. Collecting a ton of recyclable items is three times more expensive than collecting a ton of garbage because the crews pick up less material at each stop. For every ton of glass, 
plastic and metal that the truck delivers to a private recycler, the city currently spends $200 more than it would spend to bury the material in a landfill. Officials hope to recover this extra cost by selling the material, but the market price of a ton has never been anywhere near $200. In fact, it has rarely risen as high as zero. Private recyclers usually demand a fee because their processing costs exceed the eventual sales price of the recycled materials. So the city, having already lost $200 collecting the ton of material, typically has to pay another 40 to try to get rid of it. The recycling program has been costing 50 million to 100 million annually, and that's just the money coming out of the municipal budget. There's also the labor involved, the garbage sorting that millions of New Yorkers do at home every week. How much would the city have to spend if it couldn't rely on forced labor? True, some people would probably be glad to do the work for free because they regard garbage sorting as morally uplifting activity for the whole family. But many others have refused to follow the law. They seem to have a more traditional view of garbage sorting, an activity done only for money and then only by the most destitute members of society. I tried to estimate the value of a New Yorker's garbage sorting by financing an experiment by a neutral observer, a Columbia University student with no strong feelings about recycling. He kept a record of the work he did during one week complying with New York's recycling laws. It took him eight minutes during the week to sort, rinse, and deliver four pounds of cans and bottles to the basement of his building. If the city paid for that work at a typical janitorial wage, at this time in 96, it was $12 per hour, it would pay $792 in home labor costs for each ton of cans and bottles being collected. And what about the extra space occupied by that recycling receptacle in the kitchen? It must take at least a square foot, which in New York costs at least $4 a week to rent. If the city had to pay for this space, the cost per ton of recyclables would be about $2,000. That figure, plus the home labor costs, added to what the city already spends on its collection program, totals more than $3,000 for a ton of scrap metal, glass, and plastic. For that price, you could find a one-ton collection of those materials at a used car lot, a Toyota Tercel, for instance, and drive home in it. Officials who claim that recycling programs save money often do not fully account for the costs. A lot of programs, especially in the early years, have used funny money economics to justify recycling, says Chaz Miller, a contributing editor for Cycling Times, a trade newspaper. There's been a messianic zeal that's hurt the cause. The American public loves recycling, but we have to do it efficiently. It should be a business, not a religion. Recycling programs didn't fare well in a federally financed study conducted by the Solid Waste Association of North America, a trade association for municipal waste management officials. The study painstakingly analyzed costs in six communities. It found that in all but one of the curbside recycling programs and in all of the composting operations and all of the waste to energy incinerators increased the cost of waste disposal. The only cheaper thing was Seattle's curbside program, which was slightly cheaper by one-tenth of one percent than putting garbage in a landfill. Studies in European cities have reached similar conclusions. Recycling has been notoriously unprofitable in Germany, whose national program is even less efficient than New York's. We have to recognize that recycling costs money, said William Franklin, an engineer who's conducted a national study of recycling costs for the not-for-profit group Keep America Beautiful. He estimates that at today's prices, a curbside recycling program typically adds 15% to the cost of waste disposal, and more if communities get too ambitious. Does a five-cent deposit on a soft drink help the environment? Mandatory deposits encourage recycling and reduce litter, but these programs typically spend $500 for every ton of cans and bottles collected, which makes curbside recycling look like a bargain. 
States without mandatory deposits, like Texas and Washington, have proven that the most efficient way to reduce litter is to hire cleanup crews, which pick up a lot more than just bottles and cans. Recycling takes money that could be used for other cleanup efforts. When New York Sanitation Department started its recycling program, it cut back on street cleaning. Are reusable cups and plates better than disposables? A ceramic mug may seem a more virtuous choice than a cup made of polystyrene, the foam banned by ecologically conscious local governments. But it takes much more energy to manufacture the mug, and then each washing consumes more energy, not to mention water. According to calculations by Martin Hawking, a chemist at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, you'd have to use a mug a thousand times before its energy consumption per use is equal to the cup. If the mug breaks after your 900th coffee, you would have been better off using 900 polystyrene cups. A more immediate environmental impact has been demonstrated by studies in restaurants. The average number of bacterial organisms on reusable cups, plates, and flatware is 200 times greater than on disposable ones. I'm going to step away from the article for a minute. Think about that in the time of COVID. What if Portland and Portlanders knew about that fact, that reusable bacterial organisms were floating around everywhere because we don't want to use anything disposable. The average number of bacterial organisms on reusable cups, plates, and flatware is 200 times greater than disposable ones. Back to the article. Cost-benefit analyses for individual products become so confusing that even ardent environmentalists give up. After years of studies and debates about the environmental merits of cloth versus disposable diapers, some environmental organizations finally decided they couldn't decide. Parents were advised to choose whichever they wanted. This sensible advice ought to be extended to other products. It would not only make life simpler for everyone, but would probably benefit the environment. When consumers follow their preferences, they're guided by the simplest and often the best measure of a product's environmental impact, its price. Recycling devotees have too often ignored such signals, preferring programs based on rules instead of prices. And they've hurt their own cause. By turning garbage into a political issue, environmentalists have created jobs for themselves as lawyers, lobbyists, researchers, educators, and moral guardians. Environmentalists may genuinely believe they're helping the earth, but they have been hurting the common good while profiting personally. This is the real tragedy, the waste of public funds on recycling programs, and the needless public alarms about landfills. Wow. That article blew my mind and I had to share it with you guys because it's just amazing. It's called Recycling is Garbage by John Tierney in 96 in the New York Times. So we have known all this since 1996. And instead, it seems like we've just doubled down on this recycling policy. Tierney wrote another article. He wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times called The Reign of Recycling. So here's that article. In 1996, I wrote a long article for New York Times Magazine arguing that recycling processes we carried it out was wasteful. I presented plenty of evidence that recycling was costly and ineffectual, but its defenders said it was unfair to rush to judgment. Noting that the modern recycling movement had really just begun a few years earlier, they predicted it would flourish as the industry matured and the public learned how to recycle properly. So what's happened since then? So step away from the article for a minute. So. This is years and years later, because his first article was in 1996. So now he's writing in 2015. Um, do you want to thank 
about what's changed in the almost 20 years since he wrote Recycling is Garbage. Do you want to guess what it is? Okay, we're going to go back to the article and I'm going to tell you. What has happened since then? While it's true that the recycling message has reached more people than ever, when it comes to the bottom line, both economically and environmentally, not much has changed at all. Despite decades of exhortations and mandates, it's still typically more expensive for municipalities to recycle household waste than to send it to a landfill. Prices for recyclable materials have plummeted because of lower oil prices and reduced demand for them overseas. The slump has forced recycling companies to shut plants and cancel plans for new technologies. The mood is so gloomy that one industry veteran tried to cheer up her colleagues this summer with an article in a trade journal titled, Recycling is Not Dead. While politicians set higher and higher goals, the national rate of recycling has stagnated in recent years. Yes, it's popular in affluent neighborhoods like Park Slope in Brooklyn and in cities like San Francisco, but residents of the Bronx and Houston don't have the same fervor for sorting garbage in their spare time. The future for recycling looks even worse. As cities move beyond recycling paper and metals into glass, food scraps, and assorted plastics, the costs rise sharply, while the environmental benefits decline and sometimes vanish. If you believe recycling is good for the planet and that we need to do more of it, then there's a crisis to confront, said David Steiner, the chief executive of Waste Management, the largest recycler of household trash in the United States. Trying to turn garbage into gold costs a lot more than expected. We need to ask ourselves, what is the goal here? Recycling has been relentlessly promoted as a goal in and of itself, an unalloyed public good and private virtue that is indoctrinated in students from kindergarten through college. As a result, otherwise well-informed and educated people have no idea of the relative costs and benefits. They probably don't know, for instance, that to reduce carbon emissions, you'll accomplish a lot more by sorting paper and aluminum cans than worrying about yogurt containers and half-eaten slices of pizza. Most people also assume that recycling plastic bottles must be doing lots for the planet. They've been encouraged by the EPA, which assures the public that recycling plastic results in less carbon being released into the atmosphere. But how much difference does it make? Here's some perspective. To offset the greenhouse impact of one passenger's round-trip flight between New York and London, you'd have to recycle roughly 40,000 plastic bottles, assuming you fly coach. If you sit in business or first class where each passenger takes up more space, it could be more like 100,000. Even those statistics might be misleading. New York and other cities instruct people to rinse the bottles before putting them in the recycling bin, but EPA's life cycle calculation doesn't take that water into account. That single omission can make a big difference, according to Chris Goodall, author of How to Live a Low-Carbon Life. Mr. Goodall calculates that if you wash plastic in water that was heated by coal-derived electricity, then the net effect of your recycling could be more carbon in the atmosphere. To many public officials, recycling is a question of morality, not cost-benefit analysis. Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York declared that by 2030, the city would no longer send any garbage to landfills. This is the way of the future if we're going to save our Earth, he explained while announcing that New York would join San Francisco, Seattle, and other cities in moving towards a zero-waste policy, which would require unprecedented level of recycling. The national rate of recycling rose during the 1990s to 25%, meeting the goal set by the EPA official Jay Winston Porter. He advised state officials that no more than about 35% of the nation's trash was worth recycling, but some ignored him and set goals of 50% and higher. Most of those goals were never met, and the national rate has been stuck at around 34% in recent years. 
it makes sense to recycle commercial cardboard and some paper, as well as selected materials and plastics, he says. But other materials rarely make sense, including food waste and other compostables. The zero waste goal makes no sense at all. It's very expensive with almost no real environmental benefit. One of the original goals of the recycling movement was to avert a supposed crisis because there was no room left in the nation's landfills. But that media-inspired fear was never realistic in a country with so much open space. In reporting the 1996 article, I found that all the trash generated by Americans for the next thousand years would foot on one-tenth of one percent of the land available for grazing. And that tiny amount of land wouldn't be lost forever because landfills are typically covered with grass and converted to parkland like the Fresh Kills Park being created on Staten Island. The United States Open Tennis Tournament is played on the site of an old landfill and one that never had the linings and other environmental safeguards required today. Though most cities shun landfills, they have been welcomed in rural communities that reap large economic benefits and have plenty of greenery to buffer the residents from the sights and the smells. Consequently, the great landfill shortage has not arrived, and neither of the shortages of raw material that were supposed to make recycling profitable. Moreover, recycling operations have their own environmental costs, like extra trucks on the road, pollution from recycling operations, composting facilities around the country have inspired, inspired complaints about nauseating odors, swarming rats, and defecating seagulls. After New York City started sending food waste to be composted in Delaware, the unhappy neighbors of the composting plant successfully campaigned to shut it down last year. Nearly everyone, though, approves of one potential benefit of recycling, reduced emissions of greenhouse gases. Its advocates often cite an estimate by the EPA that recycling municipal solid waste in the United States saves the equivalent of 186 million metric tons of carbon dioxide comparable to removing the emissions of 39 million cars. According to EPA's estimates, virtually all the greenhouse benefits, more than 90%, come from just a few materials. Paper, cardboard, and metals like the aluminum and soda cans. That's because recycling one ton of metal or paper saves about three tons of carbon dioxide, a much bigger payoff than the other materials analyzed by the EPA recycling one, tons of, one ton of plastic only saves slightly more than one ton of carbon dioxide. A ton of food saves a little less than a ton. For glass, you have to recycle three tons in order to get about one ton of greenhouse benefits. Worst of all is yard waste. It takes 20 tons of it to save a single ton of carbon dioxide. Once you exclude paper products and metals, the total annual savings in the United States from recycling everything else in municipal trash, plastics, glass, food, yard trimmings, textiles, rubber, leather, is only two-tenths of 1% of America's carbon footprint. As a business, recycling is on the wrong side of two-term global economic trends. For centuries, the real cost of labor has been increasing, while the real cost of raw materials has been declining. That's why we can afford to buy so much more stuff than our ancestors could. As a labor-intensive activity, recycling is an increasingly expensive way to produce materials that are less and less valuable. In New York City, the net cost of recycling a ton of trash is now $300 more than it would cost to bury the trash instead. That adds up to millions of extra dollars per year, about half the budget of the Parks Department that New Yorkers are spending for the privilege of recycling. That money could buy far more valuable benefits, including more significant reductions in greenhouse emissions. So why do so many public officials keep vowing to do more recycling? 
Special interest politics is one reason, pressure from green groups, but it's also because recycling intuitively appeals to many voters. It makes people feel virtuous, especially affluent people who feel guilty about their enormous environmental footprint. It is less an ethical activity than a religious ritual, like the ones performed by Catholics to obtain indulgences for their sins. Many recyclers want more than just the freedom to practice their religion. They want to make these rituals mandatory for everyone else, too, with stiff fines for sinners who don't sort properly. Seattle has become so aggressive that the city is being sued by residents who maintain that the inspectors rooting through their trash are violating their constitutional right to privacy. It would take legions of garbage police to enforce a zero-waste society, but true believers insist that's the future. When Mayor de Blasio promised to eliminate garbage in New York, he said it was ludicrous and outdated to keep sending garbage to landfills. Recycling, he declared, was the only way for New York to become a truly sustainable city. But cities have been burying garbage for thousands of years, and it's still the easiest, cheapest solution for trash. The recycling movement is floundering, and its survival depends on continual subsidies, sermons, and policing. How can you build a sustainable city with a strategy that cannot even sustain itself? So, the point is, the only real things we should be recycling are paper and cardboard and metals like aluminum in soda cans. Those are the only things that really have greenhouse benefits. This composting kick that Portland's on and the way it edict came down the banana republic email about how we are only going to be picking up your trash twice a month because most of it is food waste and you should be composting it is pun intended garbage so hopefully that information was as mind-blowing to you folks as it was to me i thought it was absolutely amazing those john tierney articles in the new york times i'm going to end this podcast with a Quote from Dr. Vinay Prasad. He's one of our favorites on the podcast. He's a hematologist, oncologist, associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Recently, he did an article in the Dallas Morning News about masking, particularly about masking of children. And the article was September 5th, 2021, Do Masks Protect Children from COVID? What I thought, I'm not going to go through the entire article, but there was a single piece of the article that I found uh, heartbreaking. In this article, Dr. Prasad stated unequivocally, at this point, and I quote, nearly all authorities advise against outdoor masking. Why do I find that heartbreaking? It's just a mask. Who cares? Put it on, wear it outside. I find it heartbreaking because Portland and Oregon generally, have decided to abandon the science in favor of politics, political signaling, virtue signaling. And it's heartbreaking because it sows distrust and mistrust, and it's going to continue to lead to people refusing to get vaccinated and refusing to understand, want to understand, be interested in understanding data on vaccines, true scientific data on COVID, listening to authorities, generally, scientific authorities that we thought we could trust, that we thought knew the answers, that we thought could give us the good straight up information about how to best 
protect ourselves from COVID. And instead of focusing on things like drug treatment, which apparently has killed more people than COVID in the state of Oregon, focusing on weight loss, which is the number two factor for COVID after age, we're focused on things like outdoor mask mandates. Um, and as a citizen of the state, I, I find that absolutely heartbreaking because we are in a pandemic. There have been lives lost. People are suffering from incredible crippling amounts of anxiety over this. And we just can't trust our authorities to give us the straight scientific scoop. So before you make fun of people for quote unquote doing their own research or reading bullshit on the internet or sending out misinformation. Um, you know, everybody used to make fun of people who said that the virus came out of a Wuhan lab. Everybody, everybody made fun of those people. Everybody admonished people who had masks on. Dr. Fauci told you not to wear a mask. What are you doing? You're hurting the frontline workers. We admonished people not to lay in the beach. There was a, every, there, there, everybody was applauding the Grim Reaper wandering around the coasts of sunbathers telling him to get up because they were going to die. Everybody was applauding that, that now we know nut job person. Everybody was closing down the playgrounds, masking up with cloth masks inside with relatives at parties, putting masks on between bites, closing down indoor dining. And we wonder why people are suspicious of the vaccine and don't trust our leaders. I think if you can, as, as Caitlin Flanagan, who wrote that great article about abortion in The Atlantic, if you can put on your thinking cap for a minute and think of the best arguments as to why somebody might be vaccine resistant or vaccine hesitant, um, you will find that those arguments are not that crazy and are harder to defeat. And you will understand why there's such a divide in this country over what should be scientific questions whose answers are ever-changing depending on the current data that we have at the time. And for those of you who are making fun of people who get COVID or who are, you know, I guess Trumpers, Trump, by the way, is vaccinated, but who, who, who one might call a Trumper or who one might call an anti-masker or a COVID denier or an ivermectin whack job. For those of you making fun of those people who get COVID or the, the unvaccinated who get COVID, um, that is not going to decrease vax hesitancy and it's not going to increase the amount of people who get vaccinated. That is not a, a persuasive message. Making fun of people who have COVID, who don't have the vaccine, is 
not going to convince others to run out and get the vaccine. It's shaming and it's hurtful and we should have compassion and care for people who are sick, for people who are hospitalized and for people who are dying. Um, I'm happy that I have the vaccine and I'm happy that I haven't gotten COVID, but I feel very sad for people who do and I don't think that shaming them and calling calling them morons is going to do anything to advance the cause of vaccination. So if you are one of the people who wants more people to get vaccinated, please stop shaming and making fun of the unvaccinated who are getting COVID. It is not advancing our vaccination education campaign. That's all I got for today. Please tune in next time. Thank you again to all of our subscribers. Like, subscribe, give us a good review, and tell a friend. Love you all.